Good morning. You're listening to My Rapids Real Estate Show on AM 1320 WFHR, your weekly radio show focusing on real estate, the market, and everything related to housing in central Wisconsin. So welcome back. I'm Ben. And I'm Carrie Nikolai. We are with Codal Banker, Seward Realtors here in Wisconsin Rapids. That is correct. We are just finishing up water ski weekend. So again, this is all pre-recorded. So we're recording on the last day of water ski weekend. Yeah, and I don't know how that panned out. If if oh, we did skiers, very, we did very well. We did very well. Nice. Yes. So one of the things that I thought would be topical is talking about our hobbies, and the listeners might have caught on that I'm an amateur radio operator. <laughs> And you do basket weaving, and what do you do for hobbies? Oh, I have a whole list of hobbies that I do. Just kind of quiet hobbies. Right. Mine are a little bit louder sometimes. With the motorcycles and the radio screeching in the basement. No, it's not screeching in the basement. It's more or less talking when no one else is home, and all of a sudden you hear someone talking going, yeah, the weather's all good here in Texas. And I'm going, who's in Texas, and why is Texas talking in my home? So sometimes I forget to turn the radios off. But I thought it would be fun to bring in some of my ham ham radio friends and kind of explain what amateur radio is. I would like the explanation what the word ham means. Oh, okay. Because, you know, as soon as I hear ham, I'm thinking everybody's eating and it's, you know, a good munchy time. It's tasty. So welcome, Mike. Hi. Welcome, Myron. Hello. So you guys have been amateur radio operators for a long time, you know, comparatively. So who wants to answer? What do you think ham is? <laughs> why, why are we called hams? <laughs> well, Myron's been a... Uh... Operator much longer than me. Well, if you Google search ham radio, there's a lot of different conjecture on what it might be. Uh, ultimately, amateur radio started out in the earlier portion of the 1900s as amateur radio when it was a hobby form when they had spark gap transmitters and all that sort of thing. Somewhere along the line, the ham moniker came out and Depending which version of the story you hear, it's either the radio operators are showing off and making hams of themselves or countless other ways of it being. So there's really no actual finite definition of which it actually is. It's kind of like you're jawjacking and hamming it up with, with the group, with the buddies. All right. I was hoping that it would stand for something like H stands for hand. A means amateur. And M means, you know, Something multitasking. Else. Right. Which it turns into is plausible, I think. Uh, the story I heard on it is uh, in the old days, the ham operators operating the key and uh, you know, Morse code. And uh, in the process, doing so much Morse code, their, their hand would be kind of fist-shaped, you know, because of the way they work it. And over time, it kind of kind of got stuck in that general position, kind of. And they described it as being ham-like in appearance. Uh, so that's the story I heard on it. I have no idea which one is actually true. And I heard another story about uh, where it started, uh, amateur radio, at a university in Pennsylvania, I think they said it was. I don't know if that's true either. But uh, the story they told on that was uh, that the ham club actually did stand for, the HAM actually stood for a particular university club out there. But I, I don't recall now what that was. Although we do like our acronyms. Yes. <laughs> it seems everything has an acronym. And- Spelled it for whatnot. Yeah. You can almost have a full conversation just doing acronyms and not saying anything else. Pretty much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of harkens back to my days as a 911 dispatcher and using 10 codes over the police radio. You could pretty much have an entire conversation just in 10 codes. It's a lot of fun. So kind of the question, what what is amateur radio? So... Uh, a lot of people see the equipment and they think, oh, it's just like a CB radio, which it kind of is, but it's kind of not. So, Myron, what's kind of the, what what is amateur radio? Amateur radio is as much of a service as it is a hobby. 
In order to be an amateur radio operator, you have to be licensed by the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, there are three license levels out there. It's technician, the next step up is general class, and then amateur extras, a third class. Those levels, you have to take tests to prove proficiency in some basic electrical theory and bandwidths and calculations of wavelengths and all that sort of thing. With that, the service component comes in. Officially, one of the questions that is talked about in almost every technician-level test I've given is they ask about the like the, the tenets of amateur radio or something like that. And one of them is to promote international goodwill and further, and further the amateur radio art. So it's kind of a combination of a lot of things. It's a hobby. It's an art form. It's a service. And a lot of it is what you make of it. Back in the day, it was just the radio. And before being able to push the button on a microphone and talking into the radio was perfected, it was Morse code. And it was back to the very old days where you actually had the spark gap transmitters that created the RF signal. Then Morse code was out there way before this, but it was hardwired with the telegraphs and the railroad telegraphers and Samuel F.B. Morse created that. Then as time evolved, the value of the radio communications became a little more known that they were able to provide an actual service to entities that would need assistance, primarily the government in the advent of the Cold War, uh, even before that, back in the World War II era. That's where the Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Services came up, or RACES, that was a civil defense-based emergency amateur radio setup that had to be authorized through emergency government. At that time, it's emergency management now. And they existed as a communications arm of the emergency management folks to help them in the event of a breakdown of communications. Fast forward now decades to the 2020s, everybody has a phone on them. Some people have radios on them, others don't. It just depends on the person. And if you're at work, you have radio on you. Some amateurs keep radios on them too. But the amateur radio service part is still there through Amateur Radio Emergency Services or ARIES. And in a lot of places in Wisconsin, one in particular, you have the ARIES and the RACES that function as a cohesive unit. So you have to be on file as a member of ARIES and approved as a RACES member through the state or through the county emergency management office. And it's county specific, given where you reside. That's the county that you'd be on paper as a representative of, even if you do work with other agencies and other entities and other counties. So say, for instance, I lived in Portage County, but I worked in Juneau County. I would be on paper as an Aries Races member of Portage County, but I work with the Wood County Group or the Juneau County Group, and that's fine, as long as they're able to trace kind of who you are and where you come from. In a modern digital era, there's far more to the amateur side of things, the service and the hobby, than just the radio. There's the smartphones, which love them or hate them are a godsend in some cases, because there's apps for almost anything, including a lot of amateur radio applications that decades ago weren't even thought of, let alone done. So it's it's come quite a long ways and it has evolved with the times. It's it's a a technology base that's a hundred years old when uh, you know modern electricity first started. Like you said, with the telegraph service for sure. Um, now you mentioned the Aries and the Races, um, sort of the service side of things. Um, if you're an amateur radio operator, do you have to do those activities, or can you just talk on the radio for fun? There's no requirement, and Mike, you might be able to speak to this a little more. There's no requirement saying you have to participate in Aries and Races. There's no rule saying, okay, you got your license, now you have to do this. It doesn't work that way. Amateur radio is what you make of it. If you want to play radio to your heart's content, talking to 
someone across the block or someone across the globe, that's entirely your prerogative. There's no requirement saying that, well, you're only allowed to operate 200 miles. It doesn't work that way. The only requirements that you have to follow is maximum power out requirements. Most of the time, it's 1,500 watts, depending where you're at. But aside from that and staying within what privileges you're granted through the FCC, or the Federal Communications Commission that are in coordination with your license, that's all you really have to follow. And then whatever else you choose to do with it is up to you. So where does one get one of these radios? So I go and I take the <clears> test. I get everything. I mean, it's not like I can run down the street to Radio Shack, which is no longer around, but where I would think that you would be getting this. So where would I find said items besides in my grandpa's basement? The world of Amazon and eBay have been the greatest gifts in sliced bread and they've been the greatest enemies in sliced bread because anybody can get anything. Those are the quickest, easiest places to find stuff. There are actual dealers out there and with with the internet era, it's very easy to go shopping. There's multiple very reputable retailers out there, including one in, in the state here that's part of a national chain that they sell just about anything under the sun for amateur grade gear. Now, do you have to give like, here's my license number in order to get said products? Some of the dealerships ask for that, but it gets kind of sticky. You know, like say my mom wants to buy me a radio for Christmas. Well, she doesn't have a license. She's pushing 80 years old, so it's not going to work where she'd have one. But they say, well, you know, I'm buying it for my son. Okay, fine. They'll take care of it. Uh, They've relaxed a bit on that now. It used to be where you kind of had to have a call sign in order to get equipment. But now they understand that people are studying for their test and they want to listen. And that's fine and dandy, too. You can listen as much as you like, as long as you don't transmit in an illegal manner. So how do they find out if you transmitted in an illegal manner? I mean, is there like radio police out there? Signals can be triangulated through direction finding. And it's a bit of a process, but if someone is a bad actor on the air, they can be found and they can be reported to the proper authorities and they can be legally disciplined for it through the federal government. And there's some hefty fines, I believe, that go with that, too. Yeah. Offenses start at $10,000 per offense, plus you graciously donate whatever equipment you had to the FCC for their disposal. Some of those radios can be pretty expensive. But they also last a very long time. I was going to say, maybe I don't want to really know how much I said they really some, cost. <laughs> some of those radios can be very expensive. Not all of them. Probably and, the average ham is maybe 500 to, say, $2,000 on average. Mm-hmm. Most of them probably in the $500-$2,000 range. Uh, there are hams out there that have $10,000 radios. Just amazing. It, you know, they do everything for you. Uh, you know, slices and dices kind of thing. You know, every if, if you thought that you wanted a radio that could do it, some of those real expensive radios could probably do it. But for the average guy... Probably five hundred to a thousand, maybe maybe fifteen hundred. I think most people can get into it and go right up to their ears and, and get a whole lot done with that kind of money. So when we started looking for a home last year about this time um we found the house that we're currently living in and the one thing that ben was super excited about was the fact that it already had a tower on the premises so this is just as simple as taking you know a cable now i'm thinking cable i'm just going to take like a copper wire and hook it up to said tower and i can use the tower or do i have to have like special antenna it really depends what you want to do with it uh for more local communications on the VHF and UHF amateur bands. That's 144 and 434, 40 megahertz. You need a vertical antenna, and that usually goes up on top of the tower because height is your best friend in that case. In that simple trip up the tower, I don't like heights, so I'm happy to have someone else That's do when it. you find the young kids that go and yes. do that. You know, hand them 20 bucks and yep. say, here, climb this tower. Yep, and then you run your... 
your coaxial cable down the tower with it and into the radio, plug it into the back of the radio and you're in business. It gets a little bit trickier when you have high frequency antennas you have to put up. The shortwave ones where you can talk nationally and internationally. Those antennas tend to be, if it's the, the wire dipoles, they can be very long. So you need to have, in some cases, some real estate to be able to put things up on trees and stuff like that. And a lot of times with the tower there, what you would do is have a point on the tower where the center of the antenna would be, and the lobes would go off from there. And then your coaxial cable will go into the house and into the radio from there then. The uh, the way that it works is your, your transmitter sends out an electronic um, pulse of energy, electronic energy, through the antenna and it at a certain frequency has to radiate off the antenna so it's it's along a path of wire that goes all the way out so the different frequencies the different lengths of wire that cause it to radiate so now our, our listeners on um, am 1320 that kind of relates to this as well because their am station is broadcasting at 1320 megahertz hertz something like that and your radio in your car or your house is going the opposite way. You've got a wire and it's being received and then you can hear it over the speakers. The receiver converts that magic into audio. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of just fascinating how, how many options there are for getting that radiation off into, into the stratosphere and stuff. Um, so, Mike, how how can we talk around the world? I mean, is it the world's round? Mm-hmm. How do those waves get to somewhere on the other side of the world? Well, it basically uh, bounces off the stratosphere. Um, uh, it, it kind of bounces back and forth, goes up, comes back down, hits the earth, goes back up, kind of zigzags its way around the planet, and it can do that. Can do that along. You know, there's different paths, long and short paths, uh, depending upon the sun and cloud propagation. But uh, the sun affects everything that you're able or not able to do. Uh, and in a lot of cases, though, uh, you're able to talk around the world. Um, it's nothing. Uh, you can go over the poles, for instance, and then come come back around that way. Uh, but the interesting thing is you, you simply make a call out and, and somebody hears you on the other end and they're answering you. Uh, so that's the nice thing about it. Um, and then it depends on what frequency you're on, because uh, usually the, the lower the frequency, uh, you know, the lower range of the frequencies you can travel farther with. The higher the frequency when you get into like UHF, BHF is more localized. And that's, it takes a little bit more to get out with that. Um, but it's um, so like you were talking about, for instance, uh, 1320. I believe that would be considered 1.320, am I correct? So if you go on our if you go on our um, our lowest range on our HF radio, you know, you're you're down there at 1.6 and you can actually spin down below that and start tuning in 1320 on AM. Yeah, or like um down in Tennessee, we were at um the Ryman Auditorium mm-hmm. and they broadcast still they broadcast uh WSM was that 650 mm-hmm. Uh, on the AM dial. So that's even lower than that. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty cool because we can hear that here in Wisconsin and they're broadcasting power out of uh, Nashville. So that, and that's also why, like when you're ter- turning your radio to like 105.5 WIRI, the new country station, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it only goes so far. And then you, you lose the signal and you can't hear it after that. I think it's really relatable once people start to get into it. So if someone is looking to get into the hobby, it's a good idea to get some books, I would assume. Um, Where can people get information on getting into that? Well, I, I would uh, I would start looking online. I mean, there's nothing wrong with books, but these days there you can get so much information online. 
it helps you work in those directions to get your license. Um, and then the other thing is to try to find some people that are doing the hobby already. Um, that way they can add, like today, if they got a question, they can ask it and you can answer. You can show them on the radio what you're talking about. Because you can read about a lot of things, but until you get your hands on some things, they just don't make sense. And uh, some people just need that hands-on part to actually learn. They can read it, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, you know, kind of catch until they get their hands on something. So, uh, so that in that regard, that's another reason why it's nice to be able to get your hands on equipment before you actually have that license. Uh, when I learned, I actually learned on Myron's equipment. So for me, it was. Uh, I learned on his equipment and uh, enjoyed it. And then I, I reached the point where I was doing things with it that it couldn't do anymore. I, I got to that point where I had to find something different. And, uh, and then I went out and, and I spent about $1,300 on a radio. And, uh, but that's the radio I wanted and that's the radio I've got. And to this day, I don't see any reason to spend any more than that. I'm happy with what I've got. And I've had it now three or four years. So I'm very happy with that radio. So there's different ways to communicate with other people. Um, you can use your voice like, like we're talking now mm -hmm. and you can also use the good old Morse code that dits and does, and that's a whole language kind of onto itself. Um, is there other ways that you can communicate using the amateur radio? Yeah, there's a, a multitude of uh, digital uh, ways that you can do that where you're hooking up to your computer and with uh, sound card interfaces can actually start sending digital tones, which if you know about digital, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about a squared off wave pattern, basically, and everything has a certain value. So when they start doing digital sends, you start sending basically tones, and each tone represents something in the computer. And you have different programs which send different types of platforms. So um, uh, you've got uh, different platforms like FT8, FT4, uh, you've got, uh, uh, there's different programs out there like FL Digi. There's one called, they can do things like a PSK 31. Yeah, I mean, these are all just numbers and names of things. But in reality, um, you can have two people using that same platform and you can hold a, a total conversation. Um, there's one platform, uh, PSK 31, I can actually type as I go. If I make a mistake, I can actually back it up erase it on your end and then come back and type in the correction and this is all done on your computer at the same time it's done on mine and it's all done with with the radio and that's kind of the neat thing about radio we talk about the different platforms um you know your you've got your phone you've got your email you've got computers you know ipods and you you name it everybody's got this stuff but you can actually sit down and you can do these things with radio. You don't have to send a second email, for instance, to, oh, I, I need to clarify this. I can sit there and do it live with you. And that's the neat thing is you have instant correction that way. So you can actually clean up conversations as you have them. And in, in that regard, it's, it's nice uh, to be accurate. But more than that, if you do have emergency situations where you might be helping out, you can actually send more accurate information that way. Uh, so that's, you know, an application of it. But otherwise, most people just are out there talking to each other, having fun. Uh, different days of the week, you have different nets that are actually out there. We can get on a net and talk to multiple people. Some nets you just check in to say, hey, we're here and, and kind of use your equipment to do that. Other nets are more informal. Uh, they call them rag chewing. We just sit and yap and, and talk and uh, have a good time. And uh, those are the real fun ones anyway, because you really get to learn about other people and their equipment and their part of the world. And it seems kind of benign. It's like, well, big deal. So they have rain there. Well, okay. I don't need to know that. But it's interesting when they're telling you the story. Well, they've got a drought situation where they're at. Oh, I didn't know they had a drought situation there. Oh, yeah, we've got wildfires and everything going on. You're talking to people down in maybe Australia. It's winter up here and down there it's roasting and they're on fire. You know, so it's strange things that you learn about as you go. Uh, other things not so strange, you just meet people and get to know them. And it's interesting. Some people do this stuff daily. Yeah, I'll talk to you. I'll be on tomorrow at 5 p.m. And for them, it's, uh, you know, maybe an a.m. You know, time frame. And, but they actually meet and do things that way. It can be a very fun hobby. And it's neat that you can connect with people all over the world. So totally different cultures, but they're they're all kind of running the same hobby. Um, now, I, I know, Carrie, you are part of a quilting club. 
Mm-hmm. So you do quilting and it's, I think it's very similar because, um, you do the hobby and you have a set time and place that you meet, you know, with the radio, we've got kind of, uh, those network calls where you can dial up a certain frequency at a certain time and other people are there being active too. Now you guys had mentioned that, you know, the emergency part of it. So let's just say a duratio comes and knocks out power to a city for two weeks how does the amateur radio help aid the city in communication? I mean, nowadays we do have Facebook. We still have the Internet. So, I mean, as long as we have the Internet, I mean, we are pretty much well connected. But if the Internet would happen to go down during this two weeks, how does the amateur radio, how do you guys play into all that? With the amateurs, <clears throat> we are not centralized. Each person that has a license is considered some standalone amateur radio station. And with that, if something were to go sideways, it would be the catastrophic failure like you're talking about, then we have the opportunity to go primarily with the, with the Aries Racy side of things. We can assist with county emergency management or even Wisconsin emergency management, depending on the situation. And we can step in and provide communications along with them to augment their abilities. Now, do you guys get to ride around in the police cars with the uh, police officers and give them the the lowdown of what's going on? Typically, no. Wouldn't that be fun? It would be. It would be a good time, but... You get too many people start pushing buttons, and all of a sudden you're lighting up the neighborhood and making too much noise. And people get funny about that. You just don't want that to happen. Okay. Uh, but do you guys have like an office that you go to? So, you know, I'm going to use the hospital as an example of, you know what, if communication is knocked out for for reasons, you know, whoever can get there goes to the hospital and room 462, I'm making all this up as we go along, mm-hmm. but 462 is going to be our magical room that we all go to and there's equipment there for you so that way you don't have to lug all your stuff. Is Do you guys have stuff like that or no, not really? We do. We have a few radio rooms in the area here. There's a radio room in a portion of the Wood County Emergency Operations Center downtown in the courthouse that we staff with Aries Racy's operators and we would function as really point to the other radio rooms in the county. Uh, there's one at Aspire Surveyview. There's one at Marshfield Medical Center. We have another one out at United Ambulance in Grand Rapids. And then if it comes down to where we need to have more field deployable, we can set up in other places as needed because of not having the centralized need for everything. We can bring our own stuff out. We can help set up under the direction of whomever needs it then our information could be passed into the local operator at the in the radio room at the County Emergency Operations Center. Then we can either give it to the local people that might need it, or if we need to relay something to a different hospital out of the area, or if something needs to get passed on to, for instance, Wisconsin Emergency Management in Madison, we can do that from there right off the bat and get it taken care of. Okay. Do you help with um, lost or missing individuals? Sometimes. It, it really, each situation is different. So there's no absolute yes or absolute no. It depends on the size of the operation, how many people be tied up with helping out with whatever the situation is. Basically, the bigger it is, the more resources you have to call in, and that's where we would come into play. And uh, the amateur radio operators could step in but they're they're volunteers um not getting paid usually there's food involved but there's there's no payment or anything that's the inside joke whenever you know <laughs> amateur radios get together we, we usually end up with food we work for food yeah, yeah. The, the first question is what's on the menu but uh, well the important thing it's it's legit you know you want to make yep. sure that you have your tacos Yep. You know, between the tacos, the pulled pork, and the mac and cheese. I mean, yes. from there, yep. I mean, that should be should and, be key. Yep. And a condition of our being licensed is if we're performing our functions as an amateur radio operator, we're not allowed to be compensated financially for it. So we are strictly volunteer. We're out there on our own time, on our own dime, and we're doing stuff that way.
So, Mike, how did you get involved with amateur radio? What What's your background story? Where did it burn from? Oh, boy. Well, uh, got to go back to the 70s. I was into CB radio back then and I uh, enjoyed some of that. And uh, I got into law enforcement over the years. I kind of got away from the the amateur and the, <clears throat> I guess, technically it's all amateur radio, but uh, got away from the CBs and... Uh, and then the next thing you know, um, I was looking at uh, retirement, and then uh, in a few years, and so I, I got to uh, got to meet Myron and and, uh, and and a friend, a good friend of mine was already a ham radio operator, uh, Gary over at United, and between the two of them, they kind of roped me back into it, and uh, honestly, I was roped into it, and uh, so you got to check this out here, try this out, hey, go ahead and play with that for a while, you know. And it kind of brought it back out of me, you know, that, that playing around with the radio thing. It's a fun hobby, it really is, especially when you make those contacts. Each guy gets out of it what he wants, though, you know what I mean, each person. Um, for instance, there's some that they like to tinker around building their ham shack and making, you know, having all the good stuff in it and lights, and they just want it to look just so. They'll spend some time on it, but for them, it's it's the putting together of everything. It's kind of like more of the, the having is more fun, or the wanting is more fun than the having. Mm-hmm. Once they've got it, they sit back, well, that's nice. I think I should change that over there and put a different color light in that corner. It's the project that never gets done. Right, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing thing. And then there's the guys out there, the people that, Okay, so for me, how far can I communicate? Okay, so for me, I enjoy if I can start talking to somebody in Africa or Russia or you, know, you name it, over, over in Europe somewhere. Love it. Uh, talk to him. My goal is to try to talk to him. I haven't done it yet, but I, I, it's, the day's coming. Uh, to talk to, um, well, looking at the South Pole. I want to talk to them. They've got a, a station that operates down there. But then they have special stations that set up on islands, like out in the Pacific, in very, very remote locations, and uh, and trying to talk to those people. That's a thrill because you know you just talk from here in central Wisconsin. It's one thing to talk on a radio and talk to somebody on the other side of town. It's another thing to to get on a radio and talk to somebody on the other side of the planet. Uh, it's just an interesting, and sometimes they they sound like they're sitting right next to you. Other times they're scratching in the distance, but. It's all about propagation, how well things are are coming in for you that day. And the sun affects most. Do you find that you need to have the next grade antenna? Um, Yeah, well... Yes, can you're you right. Have, can you have like five antennas? Sure. I mean, is there like a limit to the number of antennas that you can have? I mean, if you have like five of them, I understand that only one can be hooked up at a time, but you could go up there and unscrew the, the yeah. cable from this one to go to that one. Well, you could put a pulley up and you can drop it down and you can put the other antenna on if you want and then hoist it back up, tie it off on the other end. So you can actually swap out antennas pretty easily, especially if you're already set up with a tower. Now, I don't have a tower. I have a mast, a pipe. Okay. That goes up, and then I have that guide off, and I use the same thing. There's an arm that steps out from it, about uh, two and a half feet. There's a pulley on that. So if I want to switch from, I've got a, a 40 meter antenna. It's, uh, it's I think it's uh, 60 and 30 feet on each side. Uh, so it's it's offset or offset. Um, so if I want to change that though and, and put a uh, a different antenna on for say 20 meters or something, I can drop that down. They can put the other antenna on and then go out and tie it off, and then up it goes. Take and hoist it back up, and now I've got, and you change the coax on it. But you can, yeah, you can do that very simple and easy in a matter of a couple of minutes. Um, now so, does, yeah, you can change does it. Does the winter, Wisconsin winter, does that affect the antennas? I mean, do they need to be like insulated and, and hugged and made sure that they're kept safe? Because I'm sure that ice is not good for them. The dirty little secret with wire antennas is in the summer they stretch and in the winter they shrink. Uh, and with that, you have a change in the resonant frequency on the antenna. And I mean, sometimes you get ice and miscellaneous crud that comes on there. And, and that happens. It's, it's just the way it is. But typically when you start transmitting, the antenna heats up because... Any radio frequency is actually heat is how it is felt by us. 
So you run the very real chance of melting whatever miscellaneous icicles off of the antenna while you're at it. Uh, the other one to kind of expand on what Mike was saying too is with switching out antennas, there are some operators who have specific antennas to do specific bands on the frequency spectrum. And they have a switch in their shack where they can just flip the switch and be on a different antenna. So it really depends on the operator what their comfort level is, what they're wanting to do with their setup. And then we've got really directional antennas too, like beams where they can focus the energy instead of just a simple wire. But those cost different too. Well, even a wire antenna can be directional. You mm-hmm. can you can put it up and have it oriented, say, northeast to southwest, and that's going to get you into different parts of the planet. As you turn it in a different direction, you might go out in different directions then. Uh, it's all about lobes of power and how they would go. If you've ever uh, heard anything about, like, radar in a squad car, those have lobes of transmission. They go out in kind of a kind of an oblong, uh, round oblong shape. Then it goes out, and there's a hot zone, and then as it gets wider and wider the signal becomes a little less, okay? And that's not unlike a wire antenna uh, for ham radio. You have lobes of, of uh, higher power and then areas of lower power. Uh, you can hear on the ends, you know, off from the ends, and you can hear more from the sides. But you can hear in all directions. But some setups are a little bit better in different directions than others. And each antenna that you have has its own design based on length and things like that. Uh, and then other pieces that you can put in there uh, can change the power and, and you know how these lobes are actually set up. And then you can put reflectors down, ground wires down, and that'll actually boost or, or reduce signals. And, and there's a lot of ways to. Is there a recommendation adjust. for the number? I know the minimum number is one because you need to have at least one at to least do one. this. But is there like a recommended number of antennas to to have? I mean, I understand you need at least one, but, you know, is there like a magic number of, you know, you need to have at least three different styles in order to have a good Friday night? I don't want Ben to get in trouble. So I'm going to say <laughs> the minimum is one and the maximum is whatever you need to achieve I know we have missions. two. <laughs> the second one just magically appeared the other day and I had to wonder why I had a paracord going through my yard. <laughs> I will say, though, that. It really depends on the frequencies you're looking to talk on. If it's high frequency, you're going to need one antenna. If it's a local VHF, UHF, you're probably going to need another one. Now, are trees affecting all of this? So, I mean, if we're we're not like in a fairly yeah. wooded area here. Foliage does come into play a little bit. It'll shorten your signal a little bit. So the best thing to do is find an old farmhouse in the middle of the farm field with nothing around except for the corn to put up the antenna. Mm-hmm. And to have a little tiny shack. That's that's the perfect world setting. Um, there, there are they actually call them antenna farms. Yes, where people live out on a farm. They've got all the wide open space they need. They've got the money, and you'll see towers out there that'll blow your mind. I mean, and you're talking about people that probably have big money to begin with, mind you. You know, the kind of people that have those ten thousand dollar radios. I think there's there's a large antenna farm, I believe, or used to be up towards Eau Claire. Yep. I know there's, I think, one down in Illinois. It's just monstrosity down there. Yeah, the one by Eau Claire, I think, is about a dozen or 15 different towers. And he had an actual, looks almost like one of the, the broadcast bungalows for a tower site. Mm-hmm. They actually had it set up as an operating plant or operating point at some of the tower sites. They had another one for other areas. So instead of just having multiple wires up? He had a multiple ham shacks he could jump in and out of. I want to operate on this frequency. I'll go over to that shack over there. Separate radios and everything. Some people are just, they've got the money to do it. Yeah. Now, do you guys do like the storm chasing to, uh, you know, let everyone know what, when the storms are coming. I mean, do you guys do storm chasing? We spot. Um, Not spot, chase. We don't chase, and here's why. Um, chasing is actually a formal training course you have to take to be certified as a chaser. Uh, almost all the operators in the area that do weather spotting are trained spotters to the National Weather Service, where they're trained to go out, greet a storm system, and observe what's going on and report real time from there. 
given our location in in what county here, we're at a very interesting spot because we have two radars that are ones we can feed information from, but neither of them are very accurate. Reason being is one in Green Bay and the one in La Crosse overshoot our area because of the curvature of the earth. So they have a lot of troubles telling what's actually happening at the ground level. Okay. And it's not because they have bad equipment. They've got the best stuff that's out there and it's good stuff and it really does very well. But the other part of the equation though is it's very hard to beat ground truth reports. So they can see a radar signature saying, well, you know, the system is showing winds at 65 miles an hour and baseball sized tail. And do we have somebody on the ground over there that can tell us what's going on? And is breezy out and it's nothing remarkable and does that mean they got it wrong no they they had the information for what they had and they did their jobs totally correct but they didn't know exactly what was happening at the ground level so that's where we would come in as spotters we'd be able to relay that ground truth information to them I mean, do you guys look forward to stormy days so that way you can go out to your favorite storm spot <laughs> eat some snacks and watch the clouds I may or may not have sat in a couple spots with my mega buddies from Quick Trip in a bottle of chi- or in a bag of chips this summer, but that's uh, that's uh, another story. Um, well, the thing is, uh, just to, to hit on something you talked about. So, from Green Bay or Lacrosse, a five degree angle on your uh, your radar from that site at about ninety miles is what you have to take into account. You're looking over the top of you at about a mile and a half up. Tornadoes are down in that lower half mile. So they'll see rotation up there that indicates there's a probability of a tornado. And that's when you'll hear it on the news. They'll, they'll say, well, it's radar indicated. In other words, they haven't got anybody that had eyes on a tornado on the ground. But the rotation is so strong at that height, there's got to be something on the ground. There almost has to be. Okay, so they opt in the air, you know, they would err on the side of safety. We want them to go and get shelter. And if it doesn't turn out, fine, it doesn't turn out. But we gave them the warning we could provide. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they operate. So then as operators, our job as spotters is to go out and try to locate these things. So in some regards, no, we don't storm chase per se. We do spot. But we, we at least our group, will, will focus on, we'll look at the radar and we'll follow the radar and see if we can get in a position to spot these problems, parts of the storm. Because it doesn't, you know, it's kind of the old adage, you know, if you're going out duck hunting, you don't just go sit out in a field and point your gun straight up in the air. And there I'm out duck hunting. Well, yeah, if one flies over, you might have success today, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing as storm spotting. It doesn't pay to go and set up in, south, in Southwood County if the storms are going through the northern part of the county. So we try to focus on where we can best be used and, and you know, go that route. And you don't need as many people to do it. Um, now, if you have a lot of people, well, yeah, you can picket line it and, and see what you have coming in. There's multiple ways to do this. But the one thing that we don't do is, you know, there's no violating speeds and things like that to get caught up to storms. You become a bigger problem than what you're trying to, to spot out there, if that's the case. So we don't do that. But yeah, as far as uh, do we look forward to it? You know, you're kind of torn there. Yeah, you want some ability to go out and do some things and and participate. At the same time, careful what you wish for because who really wants that headache? You know, and and even as as emergency coordinator, I don't necessarily want to put people in harm's way by saying, okay, we're going to go out and watch for this. Uh, that derecho is a good example. I knew it was coming before it got here. Quite a quite a distance in front of it. I knew that. Um, but we didn't have everybody go out and, and set up out there because who needs to be sitting in the 100-mile-an-hour wind that's going to come blowing through here? Go and get your shelter. We're not going to stop it. We know it's coming already, so go and get your shelter. We'll come out afterwards and see what we can do. And uh, for us, you know, some of the things we can do is, you know, are the roads blocked? What roads are open? Okay, if they have to send an ambulance out, County Trunk W, is County Trunk W open or does it have trees across it? oh, gee, we had the ambulance going to their residence out there. We could have saved them time and put them in a different route. So that's some of what we can do, you know, when that happens. Uh, the other thing is uh, what we did during that last derecho, uh, we actually uh, started answering phones for the county where they don't want dispatch to be inundated with calls for damage to property. So then they had us come in and actually answer the phones. We're communicators. Mm-hmm. So they put us on the phones to answer them. 
Um, I think they got uh, over 800 calls in that last stretch, and that's something they really didn't want dispatch to have to do on top of what they normally do. That's the one thing about assisting with uh, the emergency stuff is we can a lot of, in a lot of cases maybe enhance what they have or you know like assist with what they have. Like you had mentioned, uh, well, have we ever ridden along in a squad car? We can do things called shadowing if they were to have some kind of problem with radios. We can bring radios that we have. In most cases, it's like my mentioned, it's probably never going to really happen. But if it does, we have a backup plan. There is some, some things that we can do to assist. So, and that's really more of our job is, uh, aside from the hobby, if you're doing the emergency side of it, be prepared to do it. And that's it. You know, so that's what we do. That's what we work on. And our chances of needing it are probably very slim. And, uh, and that's fine because who really wants the headache, you know? Mm-hmm. But if it happens, we're ready. Well, and one of the things with uh, doing the storm spotting, you don't have to be an amateur radio operator to be a storm spotter. Um, I know I know a handful of people, and Teresa in our office does, uh, she's trained as a spotter. I think you went with the yeah, I went two with trainer two. too. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's just handy having the radio so that someone can be, um, that go-between, you can report back to a, a centralized net controller who's putting together this network of amateur radios in the field, reporting back to them, and then that one person can just send the information off to Green Bay. So it, yep. it, it helps coordinate using the radios. And the, the nice part with the Skywarn training, the, the weather spotter training is it's free. And in the era of 2020, but we're not going to go there. We learned that in-person trainings sometimes simply can't happen. And we learned that very quickly in 2020, but for years, weather service has had the same weather spotting. You would, of course you would have in person as an online course too. It's, hour, a couple hours of your time, depending how closely you watch everything. And it teaches you a lot of the same things you learn from an in-person course. So it's totally free. I mean, you're investing a little time, but that nugget of knowledge you get from that could keep you from, is that a tornado? Nope, it's not. It's a scud cloud. So it it can it can pay you some dividends that way with peace of mind because you have a little bit of knowledge to be able to see what's coming at you. You, you brought up something is um, cost. Does it cost anything to be an amateur radio operator other than the radio equipment? Well, to get licensed as it stands right now. Now, this is going to change within the next year. But as it stands right now, to take your radio test, depending on the volunteer examiner coordinating group that's used, you might have to pay a small fee for that just to take the test. Um, some VECs is what they're called, charge $15 per testing attempt. Others are free. It really depends at the time of the test. They will tell you that sort of thing. Uh, it was, that's for initial license grant and for upgrade grants and all that sort of thing. So if I test today and get my technician, it's 15 bucks. If I come next month and take my general, it's another 15. If I test two months later and get my extra, another 15. But some VECs have that as a free thing also because they don't believe in making people pay to get their license. And that's and that's fine, too. I mean, to, to each your own when it comes to that. Uh, to renew licenses, your amateur ticket's good for 10 years. And it was a free online renewal through the FCC's website. It's FCC.gov slash ULS or something like that. And you can go in and you renew your stuff. If you move, you can update your new address there. You can renew your license. If if you get married and you change your last name, you can change that on there too. And then it takes a little bit because you hit submit and then they review it to make sure that everything is done completely and accurately. Then that change would post also. And that was all free. Uh, fees are coming though. We know that they're coming. We don't know when. We heard next year, but we can't prove that. Uh, we heard it'll be 35 bucks for the 10-year license. It comes out uh, $3.50 a year or a couple of pennies a day. You can sponsor your local amateur radio operator. But, 
<laughs> we should start a GoFundMe. Yeah. And there was some very mixed reviews to that when the fee structure was announced. It was an absolute love or hate, and there was no lukewarm area for a lot of folks. Some people were kind of, yeah, whatever. But most people were on one side or the other of this is completely ridiculous. We shouldn't have to do it, or I understand it, and yeah, not the greatest, but it is. But that we've heard anything from very late this year, more likely they're talking next spring summer ish for that but for testing purposes and licensing purposes i know i can't speak for other entities in the area i know we offer testing at the for our monthly county areas meetings tests are available upon request you just got to tell us you're coming and we'll make sure we're set up on our end of it and from time to time we do license workshops too for technician and we haven't done a general one in some time but we do offer those on occasion too and we can help get a lot of folks set up with it. Excellent. I see that you guys are wearing your um, official T-shirts today, your polos. And Myra and I see that you're in blue and Mike, you are in red. <laughs> so I know of Star Trek and certain colors mean certain things. So do your shirt colors mean anything or is it just you got to pick your colors and that's what you wanted? Yep. You got to pick you your colors. Pick colors. Okay. Well, I was hoping that, you know, Mike seen how, you know, you might be a little bit more... <laughs> higher level than what Myron is and that's why you're wearing red today but um okay I just don't own a whole lot of red usually blue is more my color so that's why it brings out your eyes yeah yeah and I've got I've actually got two red and two blue so I enjoy them all Stay tuned and come back for hour two of My Rapids Real Estate Show, where we take a deep dive into central Wisconsin real estate market and more housing-related topics.